Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoon. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, it is the holiday season. The weirdest holiday season we have probably experienced in a long time. The holidays of 2020, where we can't see anyone we love, except the people we live with, who we're tired of. But we're finding ways to love even more. At least that's what we're trying to do. This is actually a huge week in the DeBoom household. This is my power week. Well, not just mine. I guess my whole family. <laughs> in a, in a one-week period, we celebrate Christmas. On December 28th, we celebrate our anniversary going on 24 years. My gosh, almost dropped out of that race a couple of times. I'm so glad I'm still in it. Um, on December 30th, our sweet girl turns nine years old. Yep, she came 14 days late to uh, make this week extra special. And the next day, of course, is New Year's Eve, and then you've got New Year's Day, and then, geez, Louise, you just keep rolling. But it's a big week, and, you know, I'm really grateful, actually, for today's conversation because what I need during this week, and what I'm thinking many of you need right now, is to back off a little bit on the intensity and just listen and just enjoy, and just be entertained. I feel like today's episode is sort of like a walk in the park with a friend. Uh, Sandy Graves is one of my new friends in Steamboat. She's an amazing woman. She's a brilliant artist. I don't know that many artists. The minute I met her, I knew there was something special about her. Then she opened her garage and I was like, oh my God, what are these insane bronze, you know, statues and sculptures? And I mean, the, the work that comes out of this woman is powerful and it's emotional. Uh, there are quite a few of uh, pieces that I've got my eye on, but I got to save up for them. I got to get a job first, actually. You know, I don't have a job right now, so that might have to happen first. Um, I encourage you to check check her out at sandygravesart.com. I think you're going to be pretty darn impressed. You can contact her there too if you want to chat. Um, after this episode, I think many of you might just want to chat with her. You know, we talk a lot today. Actually, we talk about everything under the sun. I mean, literally, I don't know how the conversation went on for well over an hour, but it did. Um, and we just kept going down one path and then another and then another. And, you know, I think we got a really good sense for what made this woman who she is today. But the really cool thing that I think you're going to learn and apply to yourselves, I'm sure, is that she's not just who she is today. She is an ever-changing woman who is on a search for self-growth in this world. And as she discovers new things about her, it makes every other part of her life better. 
So, my friends, I'm sure you're kind of jealous right now because I'm just like turning my head and looking right into the window above her uh, above her studio. I get to go see this amazing woman anytime I want. Um, and so, as you listen today, just uh, just enjoy because this is a big time of year for all of us. Like I said, there's a lot of intensity. And we need a little lightness. So I'm going to end 2020 with a little bit of lightness and a lot of love for today's guest, Sandy Graves. Yeah, we're just going to jump right in. Just like I just jumped right out the back door, ran across the alley and grabbed you. This is my first in-person, but COVID safe because we're relatively six feet apart. Um <laughs> interview in months and I'm so happy it's with you Sandy thanks for coming over today oh it's gonna be super fun thanks for having me well so my little home office um actually looks right into the window of your house so I spy on you all the time did you know that you know (laughs) these windows are sort of dark and the shades are usually turned so I kind of assume nobody's no I did not know that are you creeped out (laughs) now Uh, I might be a little more cautious about what I wear. Um. Hey, I grew up in locker rooms. I'm not worried about that. Um, It's when the boys get up there. It's when the boys get up there. Actually, I can be your spy cam. That would be great. Yes. Okay. 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 We are in in a position for that. Oh, really? Do Are the boys like, are they starting to have girls over? Well, they can't. It's COVID. They can't. It's COVID. That's a good excuse. Um, (laughs) But they are... I mean, my oldest is 14. And what happens when you turn 14 is a trip. Okay, so what happens to boys at 14? Well, I've never, I was raised with sisters. My dad was not around a lot. Um, And so this is really my first experience with boys. And they're just crazy. And they're just as hormonal as any girl. I mean, are they more... Okay, actually, let's go back. <laughs> I don't know which topic to follow, like you as a little girl being raised with sisters, or let's stay on this track, okay? We're not going to go down that rabbit hole yet, but we'll get there. So 14-year-old, so how many kids do you have? Two. And what are their ages? 12 and 14. They're actually the coolest kids in the neighborhood, Pro- possibly the town and possibly the country. Like, they are oh, so you. cool. Amazing. I love them. Um, you know, I kind of love them too, and I don't even really know <laughs> It's like a by proxy. So, um, so they're feeling all the, all the feels right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what does being hormonal to a 14 and probably 12 year old boy look like? Um, my, they're both very different beings, so I don't even think I can can compare them, but Wyatt will just get so angry and he'll, the swear words that he learned from me just come out of his mouth. So like, I'm like, dude, I don't use them that way. I mean, there's a lid to where I am your mother. You don't say some things. But uh, he, and then he'll snap right out of it and be your best friend. And, you know, I mean, it's the food and water thing. But right. at the same time, there's like some little thing can happen and just down in the dumps. Wow. Angry, won't talk, sad. Because I was thinking it was like all sex driven at 14 year old boy, you know, Mm. age. No. So this is funny because (laughs) I mean, I don't really, for some reason, I still think of him as like a 10 year old on some level. Um, I don't see that piece of him like reaching out to the bigger society to find a girlfriend yet. But he does this aggressive, like 
he'll grab me and kiss me on the face with so much like testosterone and like wrestle me to the floor and be like, I love you so much, giving me the hug that's breaking my ribs. You know, but and I'm sure that's just like, how do you deal with, you know, this tough man thing right. when you love your mommy and you just want to give her a hug? I think there's some uh, weird chemical thing. Wow. I don't even know, like, where to go with this because I can see it. Like, I'm not going to experience it with my daughter. No. But I can totally see that and you are so one thing you also mentioned is you have two sons very different beings so part of it is like oh well I'm learning how to handle this for the next one but you know Sawyer is going to be very different yes yep yeah yeah Sawyer's just a um he's a much gentler thinking well Wyatt has an amazing thinking mind but like a more conscientious taking time to do things more he thinks about things before he does them more it's so interesting um the word that came to my mind the words that are coming to my mind are feminine and masculine Mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting because if you just look at it from the outside you're like well you're a little dot of feminine in this world of three masculine sporty sweaty probably stinky but loving boys and men (laughs) right yeah (laughs) Very. Because we're never stinky. Well, yeah. <laughs> they never notice it because their stink overpowers my stink, but I notice it. <laughs> so, um, so it's interesting because, you know, every human has both sides. Yes. Yes. Right. And I even think about it like within art and in the career that you chose to go down or maybe you didn't chose you accidentally found or yeah. found you. <laughs> Um, and how that kind of plays out within your art. I don't know. I don't know why I went there, but I did. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually really interesting when you go back to art. Um, you know, the feminine and the masculine that comes out naturally in your in uh, my designs. Um, my husband and I often have conversations about that where he notices that my artwork is getting really chicky and he'll say you're really kind of pushing big in that area and sometimes I like to rein it in and go more masculine Um, and those are all controllable things although in my essence I think most of my work is always going to end up being pretty feminine. So would you consider yourself a feminine person? I yes yes I love being a woman. What does that mean to you? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think like female energy, moon energy, home, nest, rebirth, birth, like those are all subjects that are very important to me. And I, I love being a part of that, of um, I always think of a, I was in college and I was in an art history class, women in art history, and it was a bunch of women, um, mostly taking the class and, you know, they're all talking about woman power and down with, you know, the house and taking care of babies and baking. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's what I want to do. <laughs> I want to make cookies and knit. Um, love it. <laughs> I love it too. <laughs> so 
Yeah, it is. It's so interesting, this like natural tug of war that we play with in our lives. And sometimes we sort of embrace and give in more to one side than the other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have uh, tiptoed into your garage, which is like the place where this incredible magic happens. And and I see both sides in your art. And it's just, I wanted to meet with you. I, I pretty much knew the minute I met you that there's something special about you. <laughs> I got to share the story about how I met you, actually, which is very funny. I think it is you a remember funny story. It. I yes. think you remember it. But um, we, so we were looking at this house in Steamboat. This was during the summer sometime. And we had come through with a realtor and we walked out the back. And apparently there's a thing in Steamboat called alley culture. And I didn't know what it was, but it was like, you, if you get the house, you'd have an alley. Like, that's so cool. People hang out alley. And I was like, what's up with this alley? Well, sure enough, we walked back there and like, there's someone right in the alley do, who is really cool and doing cool and interesting stuff. And it was you. And you come <laughs> out and we start talking and... And then a couple other neighbors gravitated over and I was like, wow, the alley really is a thing. But I remember specifically saying something and sometimes I just talk and I, I don't necessarily filter until afterwards. And I'm like, oh my God, I probably shouldn't have said that. And then I, and then it like hangs out in my subconscious. You just for a while. ruminate about it. Yeah. I think I might have screwed that up before <laughs> it even started. But, um, we're talking about like, why are you leaving Boulder? What are you looking forward to here? And I was like, oh, we were talking about the concept of neighbors and neighbors can go one way or the other. For sure. We know that, right? <laughs> yep. And um, in Boulder, we had these next door neighbors who smoked cigarettes every night and we didn't have air conditioning. We had a house fan. So at like nine o'clock at night in the summer, you turn on the fan because it's 90 in your house and you want to cool off your house. And sure enough, the minute we turn it on, the neighbors would walk out and start smoking. They'd smoke whatever they had handy and it would get sucked right into our house. So our whole house would <laughs> smell like an ashtray. It's horrible. And I said something like, yeah, I mean, we just have neighbors that smoked and we couldn't stand it. We want to get away from them. And then I like literally as the words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, what if she smokes? Like, am I offending my new neighbor before? And, you know, smoking can imply like cigarettes which I think is absolutely disgusting or um, or marijuana, which is now legal, which actually doesn't smell nearly like I actually kind of enjoy the smell, even though I don't smoke. But, you know, I get it. Like people do those things. So I was like, oh, my God, this woman seems so amazing. And I think I just offended her before I even am going to have a chance to meet her. So that's my long story. But do you remember that? <laughs> oh, I totally remember it. And it's funny that I... <clears throat> having that thing in your head that you ruminate about that you're like oh man I messed this up and I mean it's such a real part of being human and caring um, but I'm also learning how to get away from that for the first time in my life like I've actually spent years just beating up myself for saying something that I don't know how the other person took it. And, um, and now I'm actually taking a step past that spot. It's such an amazing relief. So how do we do this? Um, well, it's probably part of a much bigger story, but um, long story short, 
um, <clears throat> you my, can tell the long story. This is a long form <laughs> interview here. <laughs> um, well, then I will just kind of go into the fact that I bought my first codependency book in college 30 years ago or more now. <clears throat> Ooh. And, you know, I've married the wrong man once. I've dated a lot of great people. Um, all very much, you know, codependent relationships. Was the wrong man your current husband? No. <laughs> I didn't know you were married oh, before. Oh, sorry. I was married because, before. Because, you know, marriages go through multiple identities, yes. right? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I should write the real book on marriage and, like, make sure. I don't know. Anyway, yes, they do. Um, no, I was married for about a year. I actually don't even remember how long it was. Maybe wow. a year and a half. Um, and with with that man for about seven years. Um, and then he gave me my uh, get out of jail free card and I went and found Matt and that's what was the get out of jail free card I'm gonna move my girlfriend into the house maybe you should leave (laughs) (laughs) god how freaking traumatizing I mean did you know did you know about the relationship no I had had I mean, maybe some clues, but I really just didn't see it coming. Wow. Yeah. What an asshole. (laughs) I mean, did you? You know, here's the deal. Here's what I've realized. (laughs) I didn't marry an asshole. And did I, have I like wished him dead? Absolutely. But he's actually a really amazing person that had no other way to say, Mm. I cannot raise children. And I cannot do this with you. Got it. You know? And so, like, from, what has it been, 20 years now, 20 years ago, I can look at that and say, whereas at the time, I, of course, it was a, I was, I was like, how do people survive this? Well, I mean, and I understand. I don't know if I told you this, but I've been on both sides of that equation in my marriage. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. And it's not pretty. And the, but you are an asshole when you're doing it. True. Like, so that's legit. Um, so it does take time. Time is your friend, right? Mm-hmm. Sweet. Oh, so much time. And, and okay, so I even forgot the question so. I asked you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we, well, we, we were talking about, about codependency. Yeah, codependency. So tell me about, so. like, why was that relationship codependent? With my first husband? Yeah. Um, because it takes a alcoholic to be part of a codependent relationship or something like that some something of that unbalanced nature right okay and my job in life as far as I knew it was to fix relationship you know to make every to to win at everything to fix everything for everybody to and then can I can I like take us back in time a little bit to how that formed in you as a little girl and I'm sure we didn't realize it was forming right right until one day when you're an adult and you're like oh this is what I do mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my habit my patterns right well you know I can't tell you how many therapists I've seen it's really not that big of a number I just can't remember anything anymore <laughs> um is that but, menopause or is that like having too much going on that's having weights yeah keeping too many plates spinning okay um because I actually and, think and I, menopause I and think yeah. aging Let's just call it aging. Okay. Because yeah, because aging and menopause are tied together. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm going to blame everything on menopause. Yeah. Because I don't, I think I'm having it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> We're going to figure that out later. It's, it does change things for sure. Okay. So, 
so you grew up in rural Nebraska. Yes. With two other sisters? With two sisters, yeah. And were they older than you? I'm middle. And a dad that was not really present? No, he was, well, okay, so he was raised a manly man with, you know, man school rules. And my mom was, you know, a sweet little farm girl. They're both farm girls, very down to earth, just really the two most amazing people you'll meet. And like they tried so hard and they did such a good job and they were just really wanted to do it right. And they did everything in their power to do it right. Um, and so for all these years, you know, my therapist will say, well, you're acting out very codependently. And I would be like, well, that doesn't make any sense because my dad's sober. He's like never drank in his life. My mom is never drunk. They're both very, I mean, there's, you would look at them and you're like, okay, these are the perfect people. And this is the perfect family. They really were all that. And, um, but I have recently found out. So we've never known. It never made any sense. So you grew up like in a farm in an isolated, was it a farm? Um, we grew up on what my parents called a gentleman's farm because they were both, <laughs> you know, my dad was raised actually, his parents converted a chicken coop into a home. And wow. this was in the, what, mid 30s, 1930s. Wow. Um, and she told me the story that she, my grandmother cooked on a fire outside for the first two years of their lives with their first baby who was, you know, and for those two years, you know, in Ohio. And so through those cold winters, and then they just kept building onto this chicken coop and they had five acres. And so all summer the cousins would come out to their five acres and my grandmother and her sisters would garden five acres and put up all their food. So very interesting family. Um, so they didn't have a lot of money. They any. made the best, no money. They, they made the best with nothing and they learned how to thrive. Like it seems yeah. like, and, um, and mm -hmm. they had community mm -hmm. and family that cared about yeah. them. Okay. And it's really interesting. My dad once said to me, um, the only gift that he's not been able to give me was the gift of poverty. Oh my God. I love that. Yep. He said he remembers those times and he was a child, right? Running yeah. around in bare feet. He didn't have shoes in the summer, you know, with his cousins, what could be better than, you know, all the parents sitting on the porch, talking, laughing. That was their entertainment, each other. I suddenly feel like a little bit of guilt and almost shame with how much Christmas presents and, you know, we've, we've stocked up for Wilder this year. Like there is, it is so important to go through periods of life when you have less material goods. I agree. And I'm, I'm, feeling the same shame that you're feeling you're getting to yeah well i mean okay mm -hmm. so in my dad um of course was uh had just started college when vietnam got started and um so he signed up for medical school so he could be <laughs> in college for a long time mm -hmm. and he built a80 across ohio in the summers would take a gallon of ice cream with him every day for lunch oh my god and uh during the school year he would study and you know he wasn't a great student but he ended up being an orthopedist wow yeah so he really changed his life he changed or changed the generational you know pattern yeah 
Yeah. And um, one of his grandfathers was a cobbler, um, his mother's mom. And his dad's dad was a uh, evangelical preacher. And he left the family to go spread the word of God. Wow. So is that like aligned with what you should do is leave your family right that's see, so this is what you know because they never really so my grandfather never really had a connection with his dad okay yeah um and they were very poor he left my great-grandmother with five kids and never turned back as far as i can tell um so yeah that was yeah I don't know how we got to this part in the story, but I don't know. Okay. But what we were kind of getting to is how did you grow up codependent? And it was like, well, by all like practical methods, you'd look back and be like, well, this family was like perfect. They did everything perfect. So why did you end up having that, you know, pattern sort of embedded in your, your psyche? So in the last couple of years, I have learned a lot and, um, I think it. I'm fascinated to learn about what makes me click, you know, and I want my children to learn what makes them click. And um, so I keep, I'm always on this quest. And what I've learned in the last couple of years, which has been just a great couple of years, is that codependency um, is part of shame part of not feeling like you're you're enough and so I was a um I'm, I have a lot of learning disabilities um that didn't like actually get tested out until much later in life and you know so I always really struggled in school and everybody tried to like pretend it wasn't happening so that I wouldn't think there was something wrong with me and a protection of me um and you know and a very big thing that I've recently discovered is that um, my family are Baha'is, um, B-A-H-A-I. It's a world religion. And um, my that grandmother that did the five-acre farm and um, my, mo- my paternal grandmother um, found the Baha'i faith in, I think, the 18, or 1950s. Um, and she was a devout Christian and was going to like saw this sign for this Baha'i meeting and she was going to go in there with her Bible and make sure these people weren't heathens. And so she sat through this meeting and she came out and she was like, well, I don't see anything wrong with that. And so she went back a couple more times and finally she went to a preacher and she's like, I'm learning about this Baha'i faith and I just can't find anything. It just makes Christianity so much richer and he turned to her and he said, well, that's just about as useful as the tits on a sow. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> oh my God. the saying is that's as useful as it, the tits on a boar. <laughs> and she said, well, this is a sign from my preacher that this is the most useful thing on the planet. The, the tits on a sow are very useful. And she became a Baha'i. That is so funny. <laughs> so what is the Baha'i faith? Um, the Baha'i faith is a, um, well, we're getting to why this is mm-hmm. um, p- 
part of my codependent story. <laughs> the, the Baha'i faith was started in, um, and I, I'm rusty on my numbers, um, in 1860-something, I want to say. Um, Baha'u'llah is the prophet, an actual prophet from God. We Baha'is believe that Baha'u'llah is the return of Christ. In that, they also believe that all of the prophets, major and minor, from all of history are from the same God and bring the same message. So Baha'u'llah is just another one in the progression, the progressive revelation of the connection of source to humanity. Um, so basically, you can't, you're not, you're supposed to read and study other religions to become a Baha'i um, because it's all part of one. So... Anyway, um, it is an incredibly beautiful religion. And like the most important tenets are the equality of men and women, the importance of education, because all of the writings of uh, the Baha'i faith are in the handwriting of Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha and Shoghi Effendi. And we have them in their handwriting, and it is our job to go and read and meditate and try to understand what god is telling us um and so education is the utmost because we don't have a clergy so it's it's up to you you know to you know really it's baha'u'llah was the first prophet um whose audience was the globe interesting and so it is the opposite of an exclusive religion like most religions are like you can't you can't embrace us if you also believe that yes yeah, I love that. It's so cool. It just makes so much sense. And like all the <laughs> things in the Bible that you're like, well, it's the Bible, so I'm supposed to believe it, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense to you. You know, all mm -hmm. of a sudden, from a Baha'i perspective, you're like, oh, now I get it. it. That's beautiful. Well, and the thing is, too, for like people who don't really have a faith, you can often feel like you wish you there was something for you that that didn't feel limiting. You know, mm -hmm. most religions feel limiting. And so I think that can be potentially a really, I don't know, positive option. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a, so I have stepped back from the faith. Um, I've been um, isolated for 25 years since I've lived in Steamboat. There are no other declared Baha'is in the community that I know about. And the funny thing about it is, is that like all my friends are Baha'is, so they just don't know it. Um, you know, I mean, like in the way they <laughs> yeah. act, the way yeah. they are, their, their soul totally fits this, but they don't have a need to call it anything, which I get. I'm, that's kind of where I am. It's like, it's a connection with source. And, yeah. you know, but when I was growing up, I saw it as being so special. I was such a weirdo you know, to have this weird religion that nobody's even heard of. And at one point, somebody in my community or my parents or somebody said to me, you know, how you act out there in the world is what everybody's going to think of as a Baha'i because you're their, their only example. And that I feel today is my so the source of my codependency, feeling like I was holding the weight of an entire religion on my shoulders and I could never be that good. Who could ever be that good? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. It's a lot of pressure and expectation. And I'm, I'm sure whoever said that had no 
idea that that would change the course of my entire life. Well, they probably meant it as a positive thing. Right. Or it was to try to make sure you behaved. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's probably what it was. Because <laughs> I was the one at risk. <laughs> so you said you were a weirdo. Did you mean just in the fact that you had a faith that you know was unique? Or in general, would you have been like, yeah, I was kind of a weird kid? Oh, I was a super weird kid. <laughs> and I had this weird religion. <laughs> Just to back it up. <laughs> yeah, no, my mom let me out of the house wearing, because um, in the 60s and 70s we did this, um, plaid bell-bottom pants with my favorite plaid skirt over it, and she let me wear that to school. <laughs> that, hey, well, I mean, the three- and four-year-old crowd wear that all the time, and it's considered cute, so I guess... But when, in the 70s it wasn't. And maybe when you're getting into, like, middle school, eh. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, so did like anything in your like younger school years that stands out that you think was um, important as like a formative piece here? Oh, for sure. I think my learning disabilities um, were pretty extreme. And I spent the entire, I mean, my, I spent all of grade school staring out the window. All of it. I don't remember I remember the teacher talking about corn, beans, and cassava once. And I remember staring at the ceiling of my fifth grade classroom trying, because my teacher posted all of the times tables up there and you could use them to cheat on your test, but it took a lot of time to find them. So it didn't help me, but it was more than turning in nothing. Um, But yeah, I just, I have no, and then I remember another time sticking our hands in a bag and trying to name what it was that we felt in the bag. That's really my three memories of so what are the, <laughs> what learning disabilities did you later diagnose? Well, I was taking my, uh, it was called the California Achievement Exam that we had to take to get our teaching certificate and when we were graduating from college, and I couldn't pass. And so they were like, well, maybe you should take this test and see if, you know, we can find a loophole for you. And <laughs> so I did, and they came back with this list. Oh my God. Of like, they're like, you didn't even have to go to college. Here's your degree. You know, <laughs> basically. Like, you worked so hard just to get here. Yeah. So what, what, you know, was it like kind of today's ADD or, you know, those d- dyslexia? Like what? I've looked for that documentation before and I have no idea where to find it or what it was. And I can't remember, but it was a myriad of things that I didn't even understand. Did it make you feel like, Oh, like relieved, like, oh, now I know why things were so hard. Or did it make (laughs) you feel less? Yeah, I said, ha, ha, teachers, see, (laughs) see, look. (laughs) And I got your B anyway. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, yeah, it was really like, eh, there was not being book smart in the way that other people are, which now I understand that has nothing to do with anything. Oh, my God. If the kids out there could just hear that thing, whatever your learning disability is, it has nothing to do with anything in the end, because those are such limited tasks, so limited. Um, you know, I, it, but it was, it's horrible to go through that and really feel like, you know, and so then once the teacher as you pegged is not the one that doesn't know, they ask you every time to quiz you in front of everybody in your school, which also gives you an enormous piece of codependency of, and the I'm not good enough narrative. Oh my God. Okay. So we, at some point you had to break out of there, right? Right. So you, you're, we're not in Nebraska. So you broke out. I broke out. 
um, you got married to a guy who had his own issues <laughs> and then, <laughs> and, uh, but you ended up here today. So what happened after that breakup? How, were you of, still like, ta- did you, you know, I want to understand, I guess there's two paths merging here. There's like the personal, you know, not good enough codependent narrative. And then there's also the Sandy, the emerging, budding, talented, world-class artist. Like how did those things come together to sort of change and shape you into mm. a more confident and happy person? Ah, well, I mean, pretty much on one of my kindergarten uh, report card, my kindergarten teacher wrote, Sandy will be an artist when she grows up. And so from that point on, I knew I was going to be an artist. What was she psychic? <laughs> I I think that I think that I was creating things that no kinder actually it was preschool. The, no preschooler had the right to be creating. It was not something that she had seen before. Wow. Okay. So you got to explain a little more. Like, how was it different? I think I was just a detailed and. I mean, I would just get so into it and be able to create things that you know, had a lot going on for a four-year-old. Okay, so... And I don't have any examples from back then. Well, but an adult identified that you were special. So that's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. because, I mean, how'd you feel about that when you read that, that your teacher wrote that about you? You know, I had no... I don't remember having any knowledge of it until I was in late in high school. But I've... But that's all I ever was, was an artist. You know, I mean, it's like she wrote it, but I already knew it. Like, it was just what I did. <clears throat> wow. Okay. So can I ask, like, a lot of people think, well, if you're an artist, you cr- being creative is like the number one thing. Like, if you're creative, you're an artist. Mm-hmm. Is that an accurate statement? Like, is that the number one most important key to success as an artist? Is that you're creative? That is a necessary piece, but it has, I mean, it's absolutely necessary, but it, it can be 10% of what you are. I mean, it's, it's not the defining thing. Okay. So we can come back to a little more of like the work you do, but on the path to getting here, um, when did you realize, you said you always knew you're going to be an artist, but when did you realize that could actually become a career? Well, I mean, you know, going through grade school, that's the other thing I had is that if there was ever a poster to be drawn, it was me that drew it. Um, I was really into crafting, you know, baking, sewing. I spent my summers in high school in my basement sewing as a 16-year-old girl, you know, when I wasn't water skiing. Ooh, <laughs> so you had a sporty side too. Yeah, I was a runner. I was a, a cross-country and track distance runner. I mean, were you like a pretty good, serious runner? Um, well, so many stories. The um, I was that skinny little like scrawny bean pole thing growing up, and I was always like the last one picked for everything in school. Like everybody on the whole class would have been picked, and then they'd be arguing over who had to put me on their team. It was brutal. I hated grade school. Did not I work. I hate me. the picking thing. I th- it's awful. I can't stand it. Yeah. They still do it. Um, really? I don't know. To some extent. Yuck. Anyway, so my dad was marath- ran marathons. And so I started running 
and bicycling with him. He had us out on the road every Saturday morning. We would ride our bikes to Mitchell with the stupid first-generation helmets because he's a doctor and he wants us to ride our bikes, right? And and helmets become a thing in 1985 or 84. Yeah, after they were not cool when you were wearing them though oh they were so not cool and he made us wear them <laughs> not only did we have to get up at five o'clock in the morning six o'clock in the morning i like to exaggerate and go on bike rides to eat breakfast if we wanted breakfast <laughs> but um <laughs> but we uh also had to wear those stupid helmets thank oh god our god. friends got to sleep in so you were athletic i mean oh, yeah do no. you still run no because like my i hurt my knee my senior year and i just that was that i'm yeah I wasn't willing to put in the time and effort to keep my knee healthy to keep running. But you lived in Steamboat for 25 years, so you do some outdoor things. I do a lot of outdoor things, yeah. Yes. I am. A lot of hiking, a lot of dog walks, skiing, cross-country skiing, skate skiing. Um, I'm a climber. Yes. uh, I like to mountain bike. All those things. Hut trips. So, so you have this sort of athletic side and I'm sure it ties in with a creative, you know, mm, yeah, juice of cre- helping to maybe curate more creative juices as you go here. But there was some point in college where I think this is when I remember talking to you about your career path. And this is when a few events happened that really put you on the path you're on today. In college. Yeah. Am I correct? Uh, I think, are you talking about the, my current artwork and yes. how that happened? Okay. That was not in college. That was after that college. That was way after college. Okay. Yeah. Because I graduated from college with my teaching certificate because That's I right. thought I should maybe be an architect. Cause what do you do when you know you're an artist and you're like, okay, God, why couldn't have you given me something that somebody cares about that matters that but, I could make money with? Yeah. Because I don't have any of those skills. Right. And so I spent years being angry at this gift. Um, and this desire. And then, so I was like, okay, well, I can teach until I figure out what I want to be. And, you know, I said, maybe I'll be an architect. And my mom was like, a lot of math in that, Sandy, a lot of math. <laughs> She's like, maybe you should just go to art school and just be an artist because that's what you are. And so I did that um, and graduated <clears throat> and started after college, started sculpting, but I was teaching. And I taught for 16 years at a private boarding school teaching art in Spanish, which I had learned Spanish by living in Chile for a summer um, because it was never going to happen in the classroom. It was amazing. It's changed my life as much as anything. Um, You mean your stint in Chile changed your life? Yes. Mm. And why? What happened there? Um, I got, I had an amazing host family, Um, big, wild, you know, Four kids, I guess it's not that big, truly, but it was cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody. I mean, 10 people around the table for lunch every day and dinner and la cena at night. And just amazing human beings who taught me so much about how incredibly sheltered us dumb Americans are, for lack of a better word. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. And how old were you when you went there? 18. Okay. Right after graduation. I was an exchange student through the AFS. Oh, cool. Okay. And I went there on a skiing program, but there was no snow, so we couldn't ski. So I got to know my family instead. That is hilarious. Right. I mean, it's these little things that we do, these little decisions that we do when we're in the in-betweens of our life, right? Yeah. And they really, they can make a big impact. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, art in Spanish. I'm teaching art in Spanish. And um, 
I always knew, there's a few things in my life that I've always known. Um, I've always known that I was going to have two blonde haired little boys and I was not blonde. Um, and I always knew that I would be an artist. Um, and I always knew that once I had my family and my nest and my house and everything put together that I would be able to create like a real artist, that I would be able to be a career artist. How did you know this? I don't know. Did you write it down at some point or is it always just, this has always been a pervasive thought in the back of your mind? I don't, I don't know how knowing happens. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it goes back too far to remember. Yeah. Did somebody plant it there? Did I, I think it was, there were certain, uh, there was a checklist in my codependency that I needed to check off hmm. before I could settle enough in my spirit to create. But what's interesting is the detail of the blonde I mean, isn't like, that weird? It is weird. It like appeared to me on the playground. I remember where I was standing <laughs> on the playground. Wow. I mean, I think part of this too. Matt's not blonde either. No, he's got brown <laughs> hair. But he was blonde as a baby. Okay. Well, that kind of that Dutch thing going on. Well, you're not brown haired right now. I am not. I'm rocking <laughs> the gray. <laughs> but I did dig up some old photos of you and you were sexy brunette back in the mm-hmm. day lady um but i do think there's a s- certain people who can really tap in inside you know more than others and as an athlete there's a concept of like knowing your body mm. right yes understanding your body knowing your body and we talk about it in the sense of like oh that little tweak here or there could be an injury or could not you know you mm-hmm. know when to push when to back off but i think that also can apply kind of to your soul your spirit yeah But you have to open up to it. Yeah, you have to be. And if I can just say another wonderful thing about Matt is he has helped me so much to understand that and put that into practice. Wait, Matt, your husband? I know. Isn't that weird? He's a soulful dude. He's so soulful. Oh, my God. Okay. He's like this guy who was raised in man school, which is a great term from my great therapist. I love Um, that term. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, seriously, Route County local, like, serious, Um, you know, he, he can do anything. He's one of the most capable human beings I've ever met. His brain, his body, his experience, his knowledge, his, and he manifests things. How does, yeah. Like one day we were trying to, we were at a point where, in 2008 when everything fell apart and we had brand new little babies and he had been building our house for the last year and a half single-handedly and I lost my job and all of a sudden we had zero income and he was like okay Sandy we need a refrigerator and I was like well I can go you know look for one and he's like no it'll show up just remember to be on the lookout for it because we need it and I was like okay and he's like it's how you manifest I'm like, okay, remember this is in 2008. And so I'm going about my life and this guy that I haven't seen for 10 years of friends, boyfriend from 10 years ago, like drives by and sees me in the yard and pulls over. And what does he have in the back of his truck? But a refrigerator. And he's like, hey, Sandy what are you doing here he's like i just saw you in the yard and i thought i'd stop by i'm taking this fridge to the dump we just don't have anything to do with it you know it's fine you hate throwing these things away i'm like drive her on back you're unloading it here what the hell 
but he does things like that all the time. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Yeah, he's a and he can witch water. What's that mean? You know, when you douse for water, you you take sticks uh-huh. of willow. Okay. And you walk along, you ask source for water, and you walk along with the sticks, and they'll swing in your hands towards each other, and that's where there's water underground. That Divining is, water. Okay. I think I need to become better friends with Matt. <laughs> <laughs> you do. No, he's crazy like that. Um, how did this incredible human stumble into your life? Oh, we had friends hook us up. Really? Yeah. Were you already in Steamboat? Yep. No, he. I had been here for s- probably 15 years and had been through the first marriage here. And um, yeah, my one of the other teachers at the school that I worked at, uh, the Steamboat Mountain School, awesome place, by the way. Um, her husband, or soon-to-be husband, was coaching with Matt, and Matt and her husband coach for the Winter Sports Club here in town. And um, <clears throat> they asked me if I wanted to go um, on a trip to Fruta to go mountain biking, and I said yes. And we were pulling into the grocery store, Safeway and parking lot in Fruta to get our groceries. And she's like, oh, I hope you don't mind. There's somebody with us that we think you'd really like to meet. And I'm like, oh my God, you set me up on a blind date. For a like a three week. day blind date. <laughs> uh, and uh, we ended up talking all night long. We'd both just gotten back from Peru. We were both artists. He was the kind of guy that I tend to, you know, go for because he's uber capable. And um, yeah, he, we tried to not like each other for a really long time because we were both kind of rebounding, but we just kept coming back together. It was good. He did. He took all of our leftovers from our Mexican dinner. And, you know, I woke up to this amazing meal that he had made on the, on the camp trip and coffee and oh my God. he was sitting there playing guitar. And I was like, okay. And then he finally asked me out on a date. And at this point, I'm 32 years old, right? So my clock is ticking. First date he asked me out on, he invites two of his best friends. Both of their wives are pregnant. Oh. And so I'm sitting there. And we spent, both wives had to leave early because they had, they were too pregnant to feel like hanging out. So we hung out and spoke into the late night. And these three men sat there and talked only about babies and being daddies and all of this stuff. And then my first date with Matt and I'm like itching to find the father of my children. It was torture. Manifesting. He manifested. <laughs> he did. <clears throat> he manifested you. No, and he does that. He has manifested every girlfriend he's ever had by either oh my drawing God. them or carving them. He car- I think he drew me because, yes, he drew me and my dog. That's how I knew it was me. Do you have that drawing still? He might. That's insane. I think it's somewhere. That is so cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Holy cow. So <laughs> so then the the marriage has been roses and, you know, happiness. Fucking awesome. Since. Every <laughs> fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the first times we talked, you were like, yep, I'm on checking out this uh, Instagram online therapist right now. <laughs> She's amazing. 
I mean, that's the name of the game though. You got to roll with it. And especially when you have two people who have such intense careers that are the same, not the same. You're not doing the exact same thing, but you're both artists. We are very similar. Yeah. Even in our, I mean, he's even codependent, you know, and, and we're both capable and we're both creative and creating around a creative person is much more confining than creating alone, but it pushes you so much further. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm relating because Tim and I were both, um, you know, professional triathletes, Mm -hmm. right? So we're both athletes coming together in a marriage and same kind of thing. Like you can understand more about where the other person's coming from, but when you have that level of intensity, it can be really hard for both people to shine at the same time. Oof, yeah. Don't you think? Uh Uh-huh. It is... (laughs) Are you riding that roller coaster? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Super tough one. And then... Yeah. Well, so if we kind of expand on that, um, you said you knew that you needed to have like this sort of nest, this family, this, all the pieces had to come together and then you would be free to Mm -hmm. create and to use the gift that you've always known you've had. So is that how it happened? Like was Matt shining? And then all of a sudden one day you were like, it's my turn. I will go now. <laughs> um, so Matt and his evolved. I mean, I you know, on one hand, I can like tell you about you know some drunkenness that he had that I want to just you know say this guy's an asshole, and then in the same breath, I can say this guy is so miraculous, and that's what he is. He's he's so many things. Um, but when we, <clears throat> he's also very. Like he doesn't need things. He likes things and he uses things, but he, in that, in 2008, when we had no income and I, and I lost my job at the school because the school had to go to like half size and they're like, drop in the arts. Bye-bye. Um, <clears throat> I, Matt was like, you're an artist, go sculpt. And I was like, but that was our insurance that I need to go get a job, maybe just waiting tables. And he said, Sandy, what's the worst thing that could happen if you started sculpting? And I said, I don't know. He's like, I can go get a job building. You know, I can make 40 bucks an hour. And I said, but I'm so scared. And he's like, okay, so everything fails. We take all these bikes in our garage. We weld them together into a cart. We tie 10 gallons of water to it, make a bench, tie the kids onto it, ride downhill to Mexico, park under a mango tree and fish. I'm like, okay, it's not a bad thing to do. I'll, I'll take it, you know? And so like his concept, he's so simple. He doesn't need things. And, um, so he wasn't doing like he, he was never like on the big career path or really wanted to like he was ski coaching and building. When I met him, he would build, you know, a house for a year and a half, have a roommate, pay for his truck, and then he would go live somewhere else in the world until the money ran out. And then he would come back to Steamboat and do it all over again. He's a free spirit. And he's really helped to show me that. But in that, he's never really like dug in and had like a goal of what would make his life successful. 
So how, what have you learned or taken from that? I keep on trying to learn how to be less materialistic, <laughs> you know, and I think neither of us are super materialistic and we have these goals of, you know, cutting down, you know, recycling, reusing, we're always, you know, half of our house is recycled materials. Um, but I was always the one that was like, I'm going to go have a career. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, and he's been very supportive of that. But then we had kids and they're so, it is so hard to be a parent. It is so hard. You know, neither, he was a coach his whole life. I was a teacher. We were like, we got this. We're going to rock this. And it turns out that we're both just like every other parent we know struggling to hold on even with all of our skills and experience and good intentions <clears throat> and being the I quickly was discovered as an artist because I was doing something different and my career took off and I have spent the last 15 years chasing it and those 15 <clears throat> years are the years that you also had your children yes who are now 12 and 14 yes um <laughs> it's crazy wow I want to talk about how you were discovered. I want to talk about accidents. Like um, why are yeah. accidents important in our life? And why do we need to <clears throat> keep our, our eyes open for them? You know, our hearts open to accidents instead of trying to just move on quickly from them. Right. Well, that can be answered in so many ways, right? Because truly happy accidents is a thing in art. You know, we're taught to watch out for happy accidents. And, um, you know, you have to make a lot of accidents before you go forward. Um, when I was in college in my sculpting class, which I always loved the most, um, <clears throat> I, you know, my teacher asked me to create something in wax to cast, you know, for a unit in sculpture 101 at CSU. And so... I'm, I don't really know what happened, but I totally misunderstood the project. And I made this horse because I'd grown up with horses and I knew their bodies. I could sculpt it without looking at it. Um, so with just all these weird, like negative spaces, cause I had to make this thing hollow to make it castable. And I didn't understand how I could make a form that was hollow. So I just made a form with a bunch of holes in it and random pieces that implied body parts and it looked really funny when I made it in proportion so I stretched the legs and made it tall and skinny and it finally like gained this life that I was really excited about and I turned it in and he cast it and he brought it back to me and said this is pretty cool but you can't cast this and the whole point of you know sculpting in bronze is that you can make additions because you can't ever afford to just cast one and sell it and make a living. And so I was like, okay, did you I get it? What grade did you get? <laughs> you know, I've looked for that too. I have no idea. I really <laughs> would love to find that information, but it's gone to history. So basically they told you, you can't do this. Right. Like it's cool, but you can't, you can't because why? Because you won't it make doesn't money work that way. You won't yeah. be able to make it into a, a career that you'll have to do one at a time. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Which is what painters do, <laughs> you know, but um, in bronze, it's just economically so costly mm -hmm. to create the first one. Right. Okay. You know, but, um, 
So anyway. So what'd you do with it? Um, I, you know, it followed me around from apartment to apartment for a lot of years. And finally I gave it to Matt when we got married. Cool. Okay. Um, so the uh, Steamboat Art Museum was opening up and they were asking all the artists in town to bring in something that wasn't for sale just so they could show it off. And I brought that piece. Um, I don't even think I asked Matt. I think I just took it. Um, <laughs> I had three people hunt me down to try to buy it from me at a show where nothing was for sale. And I kept explaining it was a gift and I couldn't. And finally one guy, an art collector from Chicago, come to find out, was like, everything has a price. I was like, so I ended up making um, 10 one-of-a-kind pieces like that uh, for a show that I was going to do because he didn't want to commission a piece. I said, you could just choose from one of these 10. Have I told you this story before? No, I read a little bit of it, but not this part. Okay. So yeah, I asked him, I was like, well, you can commission me. He's like, nope, I just buy what I like. If I can't see it, I don't know if I like it. So I made these 10 sculptures, all one of a kind, because he was, my professor was right. You could not mold them or you can, turns out. At the time. But they thought the yeah the people who were making the molds didn't want to take it on basically so um it was i was to open this show on a friday and so on a thursday i invited him and his wife to come up to my little apartment and had these 10 sculptures sitting out and they walked around in circles with their arms crossed, looking at everything. And I started to getting that thing, codependent thing, where you're like, oh, you guys don't have to, you know, hurt my feelings. It's okay. You can go home and think about it. Let me know later. <laughs> you know, you don't have to buy any of them. Really, you don't. And um, so I say this, and he's like, well, I would like everything on this side of the room. And his wife turns and says, well, I'll take everything on this side of the room. Shut up. Ten pieces. You they wanted to bomb. Well, and then... His wife was like, honey, she's opening a show tonight. You can't take all of her work. <laughs> and so we set up the show. They let me keep the pieces that they had purchased um, for the show just to show them. Mm -hmm. And but by before the show opened at five o'clock on a Friday night and we had set the show up on Thursday by five o'clock the next night, everything was sold. And I was oh like, my oh, God, I guess this is what I do for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh, my God. Because these, you know, these yeah. aren't like $20 items, you know, the, mm -hmm. your artwork can range. I don't know. What's the most expensive piece you've ever sold? Um, like a lot of money. 75000 <laughs> Yeah, that's like pretty much winning an Ironman, like the world championship almost, you know? Yeah, I mean, it so, feels that way. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so this is real. Like, it's funny, as an athlete, one of the questions Tim and I got all the time was, well, how do you make money doing that? Mm -hmm. Did you get that kind of, I mean, is it a little more obvious, but are people like, so is that like your side gig? And like, how do you really make money as an artist? Right. No, I have a sense that people who don't know us think we must be trust funders, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, well, he ski coaches and she's an artist. How privileged, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't that way, which is, I mean, yes, we were very privileged and we remain very privileged in the scope of things, but that's not how we pay our bills. Well, I want to go back or, to mean, the, and I want to yeah. go back to the concept of you were told you couldn't do something and you sat with the knowledge or the belief that you couldn't mold, 
right? Mm -hmm. You couldn't create a mold for the kind of art that you had a lot of, you know, interest in Mm -hmm. for many years, right? Yeah. And so what changed? Like, I want to understand, like, were you pissed when you heard that? Were you just like, okay, I'll accept that. Like, at what point were you just like, I'm going to figure this out because there's potential here. Yeah, I spent two years making one-of-a-kind pieces and realizing that, yes, it is really not a way that I'm going to move forward in my career because it just, it's all your, you, that's where all of your energy goes. And so the more I understood what mold makers were doing, the more I started thinking, this is silly. It's not that they can't do it. It's that nobody wants to take it on because it's such a pain in the butt. Interesting. So I finally took three sculptures, three original sculptures to um, the woman at the foundry who made my molds. And I handed them to her and I said, destroy all three of these sculptures. See if you can't find some way to make the mold. And she begrudgingly took the pieces and a month later handed me three molds. Oh my God. She was just willing to take the time. She. So, you know... I don't know how true this is because I like to think that women are super successful in any career field, but is it unique to be a super, you know, visionary basically as a female in your career choice? I think that, I mean, an interesting story is I'm a a member of um, American Women Artists. Um, or yeah, that's what I'd be like, wait a minute. Is it women artists of America? Anyway, this is my artist brain. Um, American women artists. And, um, they have annual meetings and they had a, a panel of women talking about being a women in the arts and, about a half an hour into this panel discussion, somebody in the audience stood up and said, so how do you juggle children, family, and art? And they all looked at each other. Not one of them had children. Oh, interesting. <laughs> when in there, there are very, very few women who succeed in an artistic career or even attempt to engage in a serious artistic career with children. Why? Because it's so freaking impossible. Because to find a creative space in your heart after you put the kids to bed, forget it. You know, you're at home. You don't have an office to go to. You don't have a, you know, kids are stealing your art supplies to play with all the time. It's, you know, it's, it just doesn't work. You know. Unless you're driven and have the kind of fortune that I've had with Matt and I just, I have this like thought that when, when you're a true artist that when the inspiration strikes, you do it. But if you have to plan like, okay, from noon to one thirty today, I will sculpt. And then what if your head's not in that space because, you know, the kids, you just got them down from the net or whatever, right, right. you know? So is that actually true or is it the kind of career where you can plan it in and make it happen or does it just take a long time well you have to plan it in and you have to I mean there's Chuck Close um the painter um said 
and I'm not going to be able to remember the quote, but, um, you know, uh, a real artist don't sit around waiting for inspiration. They get up and go to work every day. And I found that to be very true because the inspiration doesn't so much happen when you sit down at the canvas or at the clay as my case might be. It happens all day, every day when you're on a walk, when you're talking to somebody, when, you know, a bus drives by all of your senses are alert and heightened trying to, and it just, you, you're always building the ideas that are in your head. So it's like different files. And, you know, I'm sure that's like any creative process with any, you know, an entrepreneur like yourself, you, as your ideas accumulate going through the day in your dreams, wherever it happens, and then you have to go put it into action. It's true. It's very true. One of the projects I'm working on is writing a book. And it's definitely a thing where you sit down sometimes and you're like, I feel like writing a grocery list, not a book right now. It's really hard to get into the groove, but I think it just takes practice. Yeah. You've got to sit down and do it. Well, and have a space that's dedicated to it. Yeah. We're sitting in it, sister. Sitting in it, it looks so good. You know, one of the things that really strikes me about your work and anybody who just glances at your website, which is going to be listed here in the show notes, um, is that it's more about the negative space. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be a really interesting concept, you know, as, as women who like to talk, who like to share, we like to fill negative space, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with ourselves, yeah. with our thoughts, with learning. And, um, what's so beautiful is the concept that it's really sometimes better to leave it without, you know, that's really great. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Done. Yes. <laughs> yes. And which is so funny because five stars. So yes, that is, that is my next big psycho emotional health thing that I'm working on is how to create and hold negative space in my life. You know, how do you leave a hole anywhere? How do you do it? I, I got to learn that. It's really hard. I mean, I love podcasting because I get to fill all this negative space with like (laughs) really awesome conversation. You know, actually, this is interesting because I wonder when we started talking, we did a little sound check and I asked you like, hey, so what'd you do today? And do you remember what you told me? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to be able to be that. (laughs) But yeah, I do. Would you like me to repeat it? Well, you can (laughs) if you want, you know, and it had to do with like, it felt like you could have probably backed off on the conversation that you had earlier and left some negative space, but instead you went there. Right. So what I I said, I woke up, I got the kid out of the house, got some breakfast, got into a fight with my husband, (laughs) argued for an hour, kicked him out of the house. He came back to tell me how long he was going to stay gone and it was going to be much longer than I wanted and then (laughs) I asked him if he would pick up take my boxes to the FedEx (laughs) on the way out and he said he would (laughs) and then he came back and gave me a hug and a kiss and went on about his day and forgot that he was supposed to leave forever and I don't want him to leave forever (laughs) right and that's the thing like all of this just makes you human you know it makes him human and there's so much like tenderness and emotion tied up in just this one tiny little story about your day. But it's interesting because 
I don't know. I think the the idea of the negative space and the and trying to fill it with stuff or a direction or a demand or a command, you know, it's like how we're sort of built. Well, and it's part of it's it is a big part of emotional health, right? To be able to balance yourself. And it's you know, this filling our time constantly. Um my um the holistic psychologist on Instagram. You'd mentioned her yeah, earlier. What's her that name? I, Is it holistic um, psychologist? Yeah, the holistic psychologist. Okay. And it's Nicole LaPera. Oh. Yes. All I right, know a lot of cool Nicoles. Yeah, bring it on. We'll put her um, in the show notes. Holistic psychologist. And get her on your podcast. So oh, I can cool. meet her. Maybe she would come out from LA. Oh she's my got God, like we'll have to do a live one. More yeah. than two million followers and she's she's already on the circuit pretty heavily. <laughs> All right, good. Podcast. Well, bring um, it. But you know, she talks about a lot of these. And one thing that we do um, is future self-journaling, which is just a cool tool to really focus on something in a sort of meditative journaling, you know, like five sentences, but daily commitment to imagining yourself and acting as your future self as you make this you know, change in your nervous system. I love this. So at the end of the day, have you not always been this like incredible, vibrant, even, you know, compassionate, lovely person that's sitting across from me? <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, do you really know me? <laughs> no. Um, I've always been really nice. You know, the nice people mm. who are super nice. And they're like, oh, she's so nice. Mm -hmm. Because she'll bend up back and do anything for mm -hmm. you. And she'll be the president of the thing that nobody wants to be on the board <laughs> of. Or, you know, that person. You know, yeah. And which is also, I'm getting rid of that habit also. Mm -hmm. um, I'm becoming less nice. And I'm just loving it. Wow. Because I'm so much more authentic. Wow, it's liberating. It's so liberating. You can you can focus on who you really want to be. Oh, which takes us full circle yes. to my other cool Nicole. Yes. Here, uh, Nicole McGuffin, local. Who's that? She's a local therapist that I've spent cool. quite a bit of time with. Okay. And I love, <laughs> love her. her. I, I, I might um, need to look her up too. Yeah. <laughs> I would suggest her. Um, one of the powerful things that she said, and maybe it's just, you know how sometimes it's like, it's you've heard it all your life but the timing hits and it's right and she was like when you have that feeling of you know where you're ruminating over what you said about the smoker to the person that's not even your neighbor and you don't know if she's a you know if you've just offended somebody first of all she said stand up straight and say who cares because you know what nobody thinks about what we did as much as we do and second of all, say, bring it on. And the who cares is to be like, really, actually, nobody's paying attention. So <laughs> it really, people don't care. And second of all, bring it on being like, this is my opportunity to sit in my shitty feeling and experience it and change my neural pathway. This is how we take those, I just fucked up neuropathway that puts us into shame and turn it into the road that we want to be on that says I'm okay people are human and I'm one of them just like that person that I was with 
and I can sit with that and accept that I'm not that perfect person that I was raised that I as as I was growing up felt like I had to be you know the wise wilder de boom recently told me mom the only thing that's perfect is the word perfect <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Nothing is truly perfect. And I think you're right. The sooner we accept that in our lives and, and apply it to ourselves, the happier we're going to be. We won't be as angry. We won't, you know, fly off the handle mm-hmm. at things that, you know, push a little trigger. We can, we can relax into who we are. Yeah. And it's so, but okay. So I was saying from college, when I got that first book, on codependency till age 50. I have been on the search for what's wrong. How can I be not so anxious, not so hating myself, never good enough, you know, this victim and when I found the holistic psychologist who is a gift from my Nicole McGuffin therapist in town. She's like, you need to check this Instagram out. And so I did. And for the first time, all those pieces that we're talking about, like that piece of, I can just know that, you know, perfect. Nobody's perfect. You can know that you can know how to meditate. You can know how to let, let it fall off your back, like water off a duck you know, all these things that people, you can count for five, you know, to five before you explode. And I'd been practicing all these things all my life. And this program brought all of those things into this neat, nice little circle that made sense for the first time with this whole um, concept of neural pathways and just how we've trained our brain and how we're on autopilot all the time. And it was just a month by month walk through how to heal yourself and took all these things I've been doing my whole life, but knitted them together into this perfect little scarf of warmth and joy. But not quite perfect. Not at all perfect. (laughs) I know what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life, practicing all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's going to come out in the form of a, your beautiful energy walking downtown, hanging out in the alley. And also through your incredible art that other people can get to enjoy and experience. I am so excited about this part of it. Uh-huh. I am yeah. too. I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah. I just feel like this, there is this, I am right now just, and this sounds woo-woo to some, but the idea of having a meaningful connection with source and because I very much. I've experienced it. I believe in it. I feel it. You know, the global consciousness is out there. And when I tap into it, amazing things happen. And I just can't wait to see the art that comes from the global. <sighs> yes. You know, what did I just call it? I just said what consciousness. Was the global consciousness. <laughs> yeah. I get so excited. I can't talk. You, you know, know, and and take it from my little story into a global story. Well, I'm going to be watching it happen from my window as I spy on you in Yay. your garage, making, you know, magic occur. So when people want 
you know, they're going to want to look at your art here. They're going to want to see what you're creating and maybe hire, commission you to do something cool for them. So where do they go? Uh, SandyGravesArt.com. Easy peasy. Yeah. And there's a contact button on there as well. And if you search up Sandy Graves, you're going to see some really cool old photos. You were quite the hipster. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I'd like to see some pics from when you were wearing that uh, plaid on plaid ensemble. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think I have. You Some know, those pictures. <laughs> mixing prints has truly come back into style or it goes in and out. So you right. might have been more on than you thought. I or, might have. And maybe it was all my friends. <laughs> I don't know. That were the nerds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they just didn't know how to dress cool. Well, really is how it turns out. You know, this has just been so fun and we could keep going forever. And there's so many more rabbit holes to roll down. But as we are now winding down for today, so you can get back to your art and I can go ski uphill a little bit. Yay. Um, We need to leave our listeners. The snow is so nice. Oh, it's so nice. We're finally getting it. I know. Thank God. Um, Actually, it's funny that I say that because I used to not really enjoy having a lot of snow. And now I really think it's going to be a fun winter. But... um. It is time to leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way. What would yours be? I actually thought about this because I know that you do this. Um, I think, well, there's two. One is think of your life as a book. And when the chapters start getting on long, you might need to do something exciting to bring your book back to relevance. So don't let your book get boring. And uh, that's the artist side of me that gives you courage to do crazy things that you wouldn't otherwise do. And I think the more important one is just to always search, to never, I feel like the day I'm spiritually dead will be the day that I think I know it all. And I just want to, I want a life of search and a life of seeking. I can't wait to have more conversations like this with you out on the trails. Me too. I'm so glad you're my neighbor. Me too. You did. I'm so, so very glad. I am so glad you didn't shut me out when I <laughs> called you a smoker, which I didn't. But anyway, no, you, you get the gist. <laughs> I'm done with that. I'm switching my neuropathways. <laughs> Boom. It's over. All right, Sandy. It's awesome. Let's get on with our day. Okay. Have a great one. All right. I'm back. It's a wrap. And here is the perfect way to end this episode today and let you get on your merry way through the uh, end of 2020. Don't let your book get boring. If you think it's a little bit boring now, go out and spice it up. You still have a few more days to uh, ring in the new year with some great energy. All right, everyone. I hope you loved my chat with Sandy Graves today. I hope you check her out at sandygravesart.com. And uh, geez, she left us all kinds of resources to go out and improve ourselves as well. That's what I love about this podcast and about the interviews that I do is that it's all about helping each other pave a better path in this world. All right, you guys, on that note, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.